I'm glad to, to be here. I'm very honored to be uh, selected as the first speaker for this study. I've, I've only been here once before, two years ago, but uh, it was a very, very beneficial study for me at that time. And I am thrilled to be a part of it now from uh, this side of the pulpit. The subject that we're uh, looking at first this evening, uh, intertestamental literature, is a very, very broad subject. Uh, most of the books that I looked at were at least 500 pages long. I didn't read all that many books to prepare. Uh, I read some of several books. I don't need to come across the wrong way there. But <laughs> I wasn't able to read all of the material that I found in my research simply because of how voluminous the subject is. Now, to, to kind of set, set the tone for our study, we can notice that at the end of the Old Testament, we found the people of Judah, the descendants of the people of Israel, who were led out of the uh, land of Egypt by Moses, in a weakened but optimistic state. A substantial number of the, the people had returned to Judah and Jerusalem, and they had built a, a new temple where Solomon's temple had stood and had been destroyed by the Babylonian Empire about 70 years before. A new high priest had been established, a true descendant of Aaron, and he was appointed to restore the ancient sacrificial ritual that had been interrupted when the Babylonian Empire sacked Jerusalem. And although this, uh, this political system or this new system in Jerusalem no longer held the same political authority that they had had before, the descendants of David, and uh, David, who was God's anointed king, had returned to their homeland as a part of the remnant. The people were not independent. They were a vassal state of the Persian Empire, but they were treated with dignity and respect by that political system. We can read about the restoration process of the nation of Israel in the canonical books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and some of the realities of living under Persian domination in Esther. And several of these subjects are addressed in the prophets of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi as well. Now, after the intertestamental period, we find a very different picture at the beginning of the New Testament, when Jesus was born and when he conducted his ministry on this earth. This is about 400 years after the last events we read of in the Old Testament. At Jesus' time, the country was ruled by Herod, who was a king. I've been skipping my slides here. We read about Herod, a king who did not belong to David's dynasty and who only ruled by the good pleasure of the Roman Empire, which had a very different character and followed a very different direction than the Persian Empire at the end of the Old Testament. The nation's religious life had been marred by the development of competing sects within Judaism. The most famous of these were the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we read about all throughout the New Testament, who played a prominent role in Jesus' ministry. But there were a number of others, including the Herodians, who likely, com uh, comprised, who likely compromised strict adherence to some of the Old Testament regulations to minimize conflict with Rome, and the Essenes, who rejected the temple altogether uh, as a farce, and instead tried to set up a true Israelite community in the wilderness. In the midst of this religious strife, the office of high priest became a political position controlled by the Roman government. Life had changed rather drastically for a religiously observant Jew living in Judah, and none of these changes took place in a vacuum. The literature of the intertestamental period essentially recognizes these changes, that the movement from a 
stable and optimistic nation at the end of the Old Testament to an unstable and uncertain nation in the New Testament. And the intertestamental literature represents the, the different sects and the different leaders of the time trying to come to terms with these changes and find their path uh, through that uncertain period. Now, before we explore the historical context in a little bit more detail, we need to find our bearings with regard to what exactly we're talking about when we talk about intertestamental literature. Broadly speaking, we can divide intertestamental literature into three categories. The first is the Apocrypha. For most of us, these are probably the most familiar books among the intertestamental literature. These are the books that have been accepted as the Deuterocanon, or the second canon, by the Catholic Church. And uh, they have, as a result, been published in several English Bibles throughout the years. This literature includes the books of Tobit, Judith, The Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, The Letter of Jeremiah, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, 1st Esdras, The Prayer of Manasseh, and additions to several canonical books, including a 151st Psalm, three passages in Daniel, and a reworked version of the book of Esther. So that's the first category of intertestamental literature. The second category is called the pseudepigrapha. This word, pseudepigrapha, literally refers to the books that were written under someone else's name, which could actually include quite a bit of the apocrypha, which were written under the names of prophets like Jeremiah or uh, Ezra, among others. The second category contains the books that laid claim to the same authority as scripture, but have never been able to substantiate their claims to be inspired by God. This category includes some books that are more or less well-known, including the book of Jubilees, First and Second Enoch, the books of Adam and Eve, the martyrdom of Isaiah, the Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs, the Sibylline Oracles, the Assumption of Moses, Second Baruch, Fourth Ezra, the Psalms of Solomon, and many others. Now, finally, we have the third category, which includes religious and philosophical works that don't necessarily fit into one of these other two categories. Uh, sometimes we overlook a few books that represent Jewish thought during this period of time that don't claim direct inspiration, like the works of Philo of Alexandria, the works of Josephus, who, uh, as we'll see, much of the intertestament literature was actually written after the New Testament, but uh, he fits into this, this period of time as well. Then we have other books that don't claim to be written by Old Testament prophets. That is, they were written under someone's own name, although some still claim inspiration, like 3rd and 4th Maccabees, the literature reflecting the work of the teacher of righteousness in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is what most of these uh, titles on this slide are, and uh, several other works that came from the same period of time, like the letter of Aristeus. Now, we can see from this brief overview that the intertestamental period saw the production of a great deal of religious literature that was designed to help the people of Israel find their way in a changing world. However, despite the fact that most of this literature claimed to be the product of divine inspiration, only a few of these books have been accepted as being in any way authoritative for either Judaism or Christianity throughout the ages. This record stands in contrast to the canonical books of the Old Testament, which have been accepted more or less universally by all communities of faith that have ever descended from this, this Abrahamic tradition. 
What makes the difference? What separates these books on this slide from the, the 36 books that we recognize in the Old Testament today? Why do we trust some books that were produced by Israelites in the name of God and reject others that claim those same qualifications? Now, the process of canon formation deserves a full study in its own right, so we can only summarize briefly here. But ultimately, what it comes down to is that the Old Testament canon is trustworthy because God showed his work while the books were being written. God commended every one of his prophets, from Moses to Malachi, with some sort of miraculous sign that proved he was working through this individual to reveal his will. Even those, such as Jeremiah, who were doubted throughout their own lifetime, were vindicated by subsequent generations who looked back at their works and saw how precisely their, their prophecies had been fulfilled in history so that they could see that these were truly the words of God. Without a doubt, this is the feature that the intertestamental literature lacked. The, one who the ones who claimed to have been written centuries before they first appeared could offer no proof to support that claim. And the ones that claimed to be the writings of new prophets were never supported by miraculous signs. Therefore, although some in different pockets here and there believed their claims, none of these books were ever able to demand the loyalty of the whole nation the same way that the books of the Old Testament had, had demanded that same loyalty. For the same reason, none of them have been commended to us today as the authoritative word of God. God has always shown his work in history, and these books are not connected to any true uh, believable miracles that have been reported throughout the world's history. This does not mean that we can't learn anything from the intertestamental literature. Even though they are not the word of God, they can help us connect the dots between the Old Testament and the New Testament. As we noted at the beginning, the political, social, and religious situation in Judah changed dramatically between Nehemiah and Jesus. Learning from the intertestamental literature can help us better understand the disputes and movements that shaped Jesus' ministry, and it can give us a deeper appreciation for how the New Testament literature succeeded in finding a way through the ever-changing world that we live in where the intertestamental literature had failed. In order to understand how the Jews responded to the events of the intertestamental period, we need to kind of go over briefly what happened during this period of history. We'll summarize these events briefly, but I, I uh, let's see. I've lost my space. I want to mention a couple of books that help, our, help us find our bearings in this, in this uh, period of history before we go on further. One helpful book is called Israel and the Nations by F.F. F. Bruce. This is more of a historical work. He doesn't talk very much about the intertestamental literature itself, but he, he provides a very good, well-researched summary of what happened between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. The second book is called Exploring Jewish Literature of the Second Temple Period by Larry R. Hellyer. I have a couple of slides at the end that we can look at if we need to, to, to talk about this book, but he, he goes through more or less book by book at, among this collection that we, we listed on the slide earlier and explains how each one seems to fit into that period of history. And uh, I've drawn a lot on his research as I've worked out 
this presentation. Okay, to set the stage, we need to understand what happened before the Second Temple period began. We have to know how the First Temple period came to an end and what the situation of the Israelites was before they returned from exile. The books of Second Kings and Second Chronicles, along with a number of the prophets, most notably Jeremiah, record how the city of Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonian Empire in about 597 BC under the king Nebuchadnezzar. The city was not destroyed at this point, but Judah lost its independence as a nation. Now, they were forced to conform with Babylonian policy through heavy taxes and the threat of military retribution. Dissatisfied with the state of affairs, the last Davidic king who ruled from Jerusalem, named Zedekiah, chose to revolt against Babylon with the hopes that the Egyptian army would come to help him fight against this oppressive king. The Egyptian army, however, did not come, and Nebuchadnezzar's army laid siege against Jerusalem for two years. When the siege finally broke through the walls, the Babylonian army burned the city to the ground, including Solomon's temple, and either killed or captured all of its inhabitants. Jerusalem had been destroyed, and the nation of Judah simply ceased to exist for a period of time. It seems likely that some Jews remained in the land. For context, we're, we're talking about the land of Israel about here. And they were conquered by Babylonia, and most were carried off into that region. Now, it seems likely that some Jews remained in the land of Israel, but they mostly belonged to the peasant class who simply farmed the land and had no political or social power of their own. Anyone who possessed any kind of influence or wealth were either killed or deported and settled in another part of the Babylonian Empire. The book of Daniel tells us about some of those who ended up in the capital city of Babylon itself, but some were settled, it seems, in almost every city or every province of the empire. Nebuchadnezzar's promise or purpose was not to destroy the people or turn them into second-class citizens of his empire, but instead he wanted to scatter them so that they couldn't gather and form a revolution again. The evidence suggests that a good many Jews, aside from Daniel and his friends, rose to notable ranks within the, Persian go within the uh, Babylonian government, and some were able to become independently wealthy where they had settled. What they lacked was a home country and a temple where they could worship God. This brings us to the Persian period, or often called in literature the Achaemenid period. The circumstance whereby the, the Jews had no city, no, no nation, and no temple, changed when the Persian government conquered Babylon in 539 BC. The Persian king, Cyrus, quickly passed an edict that allowed but did not force Jews to return to Judah and rebuild the city of Jerusalem with its temple to God. Even though this permission was given in about 537 BC, it still took quite a long time before either the city or the temple was actually rebuilt. The second temple was finished about 20 years later, around 516 or 515 BC, according to the book of Ezra, but the city remained in disrepair for a much longer time until Ezra and Nehemiah came to finish that work. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce places the beginning of Nehemiah's work in about 445 BC, so almost 100 years after Cyrus allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem. This, uh, the delay is notwithstanding, however. The Persian period saw the restoration of the temple 
with a legitimate priesthood and a real concrete sense of progress toward having a home again where all Jews could live and worship in peace. But not all Jews returned to Judah, even when the temple was rededicated. The book of Esther shows that not only did families continue to live all throughout the former Babylonian empire, but some had moved even further away into Persian territory. Esther and her uncle, Mordecai, lived in the Persian capital city of Susa, which uh, is right around here. This was uh, far east of their homeland. This is the beginning of what would be called the diaspora, the uh, Jews who were often religiously faithful, at least as best as they, they knew how or, or were committed to, uh, but they made their homes abroad. Some took this as an opportunity to become more secular or more involved in the culture around them, but many held on to their Jewish identity and their commitment to God. But for one reason or another, they made the decision to continue living somewhere other than Judah. Altogether, the Persian period was a very peaceful period for Judah. There were perhaps a few wars and revolts that they were caught up into, but by and large, they were allowed to live and worship as they pleased. This brings us to the Hellenistic period, or the Greek period. The Persian Empire came to an end when the Macedonian Greek conqueror, Alexander the Great, marched through Asia with his armies. It's difficult to overstate just how much territory Alexander conquered through such a short period of time. If you've noticed, our map has been getting more and more zoomed out as we've gone from empire to empire. Previously, there had been three great civilizations on the Mediterranean who all had conflicts with each other from time to time. That would be the Persian Achaemenid Empire that we just studied, the Egyptian kingdom down on the uh, southwest side, and the Greek city-states who warred with each other just as much as they warred with outsiders. Under Alexander, though, for the first time in history, all of these civilizations were united under a single flag. They all began to learn the Greek language, they all began to practice Greek culture, and they began to adopt Greek names. While Greek culture made a lasting impact on every region it touched, the political unity of Alexander's empire quickly came to an end when he died at a young age, and his empire was divided between a number of his top generals. Most importantly for the history of Judah, his general Seleucus took control of Syria, which is, uh, really, he took control of much more territory, this green empire right here, and another general named Ptolemy ruled from Egypt in the red. Geographically, Israel falls halfway between these two kingdoms, and they found themselves in the middle of a power struggle between these two kings and their dynasties. Both kingdoms wanted to control the region of Judah, and they guarded it jealously when it was in their possession. Now, during the same period of time, the diaspora communities continued to exist throughout the former Persian Empire, but even more spread into Greek cities around the Mediterranean Sea. This is probably when the Jewish communities Paul encountered throughout Turkey and Greece were founded, for example, uh, up in this region. And a particularly famous Jewish community appeared in Alexandria in Egypt. Because of the pervading influence of Greek culture everywhere, including Jerusalem, 
most religiously observant Jews were forced to decide how much they needed to separate themselves from the social events of their day in order to remain faithful to God, especially since idolatry permeated most educational and recreational institutions, according to the Greek model. This period also saw periods of relative independence from the Greek kingdom surrounding Judah. This was accomplished by what's called the Hasmonean dynasty, who are more popularly known as the Maccabees, who are mentioned in the books by that name in the, in the intertestamental literature. This family led a revolt against the Seleucid Empire, which controlled uh, Judah at the time, as a response to the Seleucid king Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, this king set up an idol in the temple in Jerusalem, which understandably offended the Jews to a great degree, and uh, this started a popular revolution that turned into a protracted, protracted war that was ultimately won by the Jews, but not before several of the Maccabee brothers had died. Now, significantly for the religious literature of the time, the survivor of the Maccabee brothers, named Simon, was hailed as a war hero and then proclaimed both king and high priest. On the one hand, the Jews were exuberant to have an independent country again, but on the other, those who took the law of Moses seriously were offended when Simon was appointed as high priest because he was not a descendant of Aaron, even though he belonged to the tribe of Levi. He had no right to the high priesthood. And this perhaps led to some of the movements that rejected the temple altogether. Nonetheless, Simon and his descendants reigned as both kings and high priests until the Roman period. And to my knowledge, no legitimate descendant of Aaron ever held the high priesthood again after the Maccabees took that position. Finally, the fourth period of the intertestamental era was the Roman period, which is the, the period into which Jesus was born. During the last part of the Greek Empire, Rome was flexing its muscles as a new power on the Mediterranean Sea. The Seleucid and Ptolemaic kingdoms continued to fight one another while the Hasmoneans ruled in Judah, but Rome ultimately sent an army to impose peace on the region and stop the fighting. On the same visit, two brothers in the Hasmonean line, named Aristobulus II and Hyrcanus II, appealed to the Roman general Pompey to settle a dispute between them within the, uh, within the government of Judah. Now, at the same time, both of these brothers were so unpopular with the Jews living in Judah that they sent a, a third delegation to, Ptolemy, or to, to uh, Pompey, asking him to get rid of both of them. Um, by asking a Roman officer to decide what the, the structure of their government should be, the nation of Judah essentially put themselves under Roman authority by asking him to, to serve this rule. Judah continued to live under Roman authority until the second temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Thus, everyone who became high priest after 63 BC, which is when uh, uh, Pompey was in Israel, in Judah, everyone who became high priest only did so with per the permission of the Roman government. No one became king without their oversight. Herod the Great, who was king when Jesus was born, only became king because he traveled to Rome to appeal to the Roman Senate to, once again, resolve some infighting between the Jewish leaders, and uh, the Roman Senate decided that the country was better off with Herod in charge. Rome continued to encourage Greek culture wherever they ruled, so the problems of the Hellenistic period continued into the Roman period. 
Rome established a direct presence in most Judean cities and towns, and after the Herod the Great died, they took over direct control of the province via a Roman governor. Herod's children continued to rule smaller areas around the region like Galilee, which is why we see uh, some of them throughout the New Testament as well. Thus, every Jew had to deal with a nearly constant uh, social pressure to abandon some tenets of their religion to become socially acceptable because Rome continued to push even more strongly these concepts of Greek education and Greek uh, recreation. The Roman period came to an end when in 67 AD, the Jews in Judea tried to break Rome's political control over them through a brutal revolution, which was, this war was won by the Roman army. In the end, the Romans burned Jerusalem to the ground with the second temple, forcing any religious Jews who remained to find their way forward without any hope of restoration. In a sense, in 70 AD, the Jews returned back to the same state that they were in in the exile, with no home country, no city, and no temple. But this time, there was no hope of a restoration. Now, this has been a very condensed and rapid survey of the history of the period, but most of the themes that come out throughout intertestamental literature rise out of the problems that the citizens of Judah faced during this period of time. First, we have the diaspora. How can a Jew remain faithful to God when he doesn't live in the promised land? Quite a bit of the intertestamental literature addresses that question. Second, political domination. How could God be praised in a nation that was politically controlled by polytheists who did not honor him? Third, religious corruption. What should a faithful Jew do when the rightful high priest has been ousted from the temple in Jerusalem and he's been replaced by a warrior king with no right to that position? And fourth, Hellenistic culture or Greek culture. Whether at home in Judah or living in the diaspora, how closely could a faithful Jew interact with foreign cultures without compromising the laws of separation in the Old Testament? Now we've spent most of our time uh, building a framework to understand the historical context for most of the intertestamental literature. I think it's essential to focus our study in this direction because we know so little of it otherwise. The, the Bible does not deal with this period of history outside of certain prophecies in the book of Daniel and uh, perhaps some of the other prophets. Now, most of the literature was written either anonymously or under an assumed name from earlier in Israel's history, and that it's very difficult to tell exactly when or how each book in the intertestamental literature was written. Therefore, we can't easily discuss the who, the when, or the to whom of this literature. We just don't have enough information. But we can draw some very reasonable conclusions about each book regarding the why. Why was it written? What, what issue, what problem was it designed to address? In this slide, we'd like to go back through this, this same sort of historical survey, go back through the periods, and explain where the major intertestamental works seem to fit in that scheme. Uh, I have a list that's probably too long to cover in the rest of the time that we're, we're going through, but I've structured this so that we can stop when we run out of time and uh, 
perhaps address a few more in the questions if you have questions about specific books. The first, the Achaemenid period or the Persian period. The beginning and the middle of the Persian period saw the production of the last few canonical books of the Old Testament, which addressed the problems of that era with the, with the authoritative voice of God. That is, God revealed to the Jews of this period how they should act, how they should be thinking about the political developments of that day and age, and what the, the right course was to follow. Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi all addressed the people's identity in the land of Judah itself once some of the exiles had returned to rebuild the, the city of Jerusalem. These prophets guided them through the process of reinstating temple worship and separating themselves from the cultures surrounding them, all while paying proper honor to the Persian king as a tool of God's providence. Thus, the people who resettled the promised land had a sense of identity and purpose. The older prophets, like Jeremiah, envisioned that most, if not all, of the faithful remnant would return to Judah when given permission, but we know that quite a few remained in the diaspora at this time, and even, um, even if the generation who chose to remain when Cyrus passed the edict that allowed the Jews to return to their homeland did not themselves have a strong faith, that is, so those who had a strong faith returned to Judah to restore their homeland, but some remained. Sometimes we had uh, more secular Jews who remained in the diaspora who had no interest in returning, but their descendants may have a greater interest in uh, serving God later on, even though they live away from Judah. We have a canonical example of this group in the book of Esther, which, as we've already mentioned, took place in the Persian capital of Susa, showing that Esther's family had actually moved farther away from Judah rather than returning, uh, returning with the community described in Ezra and Nehemiah. So we have canonical examples of both those who returned to Judah as well as those who remained in the diaspora. The book of Esther then provided a good and authoritative example of how to honor God even when living in an idolatrous city. And it seems like the first books of the Apocrypha aimed to accomplish the same goal. The book of Tobit offers a dramatic account of the lives of a handful of faithful Jews living in exile. There are theological problems with the book, to be sure, but it primarily serves to give its readers a good role model as they witness the characters in its pages work their way through several sticky situations that come with living around people who don't believe the same way you do. All, uh, during all of these events, all of the characters kept the law of Moses as well as the book's author understood it. The additions to the book of Daniel uh, each have a slightly more focused point. Susanna, the, the, the chapter dealing with Susanna was meant to show how a Jew who was wrongfully accused by a prejudiced system could uphold her dignity in the face of that challenge. Bell and the Dragon uh, highlights the foolishness of idolatry when compared with Israel's religion thus serving perhaps a similar role to Elijah's contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Finally, the prayer of Azariah and the Song of the Three Jews was meant to give a deeper glimpse into the minds of Jews who were prepared to die for their faith when their faith offended the king. So again, we see that the, the intertestamental literature was trying to provide good examples of how to deal with the problems of this period. Similarly to Bell and the Dragon, the letter of Jeremiah uh, 
basically makes the point that idols hold no real power compared to God. This was, this was meant to bolster the faith of Jews who were living in exile. Thus, it seems that the earliest non-canonical books of the intertestamental period were produced to augment the biblical teaching that had already been revealed. It's entirely possible, for example, that the book of Tobit was never meant to be taken as scripture, even though it was by later generations. Perhaps it was only meant to be a thoughtful story that would encourage Jews living in the diaspora to do what was right as best as its author knew. We could draw on countless parallel examples in the modern day. Uh, we often read religious books and even religious stories that are designed to help us work through the problems of our lives. It is unfortunate that others from this period began to put their words in the mouths of the historical prophets to try to give them more weight, uh, because again, we might actually praise what they were doing if they were honest about their intentions and their identity as they tried to encourage a suffering people. After the Persian period came to an end, we see a, a dramatic upswing in the production of non-canonical books, or at least the ones that have survived to our day. Now, this period brought several new problems to the table for the Jewish people. First, Alexander the Great's uh, conquest installed Greek cultural institutions throughout the world. Gymnasiums were built in almost every city where young men could exercise and practice Greek sports. Amphitheaters were built for Greek plays and public spectacles. And most formal schools were reworked to ref reflect the Greek philosophy of education. Jerusalem was no exception to this trend. Jerusalem had an amphitheater, it had a gymnasium, and it had all of these kinds of Greek schools. Every Jew everywhere was forced to decide how much he could interact with these social institutions without compromising the principle of cultural separation taught in the Law of Moses. This cultural influence, combined with the political instability and constant wars that Judah was pulled into after Alexander's death, seemed to develop a sense of impending doom and judgment within the Jewish community. This perception seems to be what stood behind much of the apocalyptic literature of that time period, for example. Now we'll start on a slightly tamer note, not quite as apocalyptic yet, with the book of Ecclesiasticus. This is also known as the Wisdom of Ben Sirach, or, or Jesus Ben Sirach, or various different names. The, 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 the author was named Jesus Ben Sirach. This is a book of wisdom written in a very similar style to the biblical book of Proverbs. Ben Sirach wrote under his own name, and he does not seem to have laid any claim to divine inspiration, although some scholars would disagree with me on that point. Instead, he seems to have simply presented himself as a wise student of God's word who had a few pointers for Jews living in his day. The book of Jubilees is a retelling of the history of the patriarchs of Israel up to the nation's arrival at Sinai to reveal the law of God. It seems to have been written to prove incorrectly, as we understand it, that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, like circumcision and Sabbath keeping, were observed all the way back to the days of the patriarchs, including uh, Abraham, uh, or b including before Abraham. Um, let's see. Perhaps this book was written as a response to sects that wanted to modernize Judaism, because we can read of some Jews who stopped practicing circumcision because, well, to be completely frank about it, Greek sports were practiced in the nude, and it was very plain when someone was circumcised as opposed to when he was not. And there was societal pressure 
not to practice circumcision anymore. So it seems that some sects of Judaism uh, toned down the importance of the ceremonial laws, and the Book of Jubilees seems to have been written as a response to these groups. The Testament of Moses, which is also called the Assumption of Moses, claims to be a prophecy written and then hidden by Moses that traced the history of the nation in great detail down to the Hellenistic period. This work seems to believe that the wars and cultural pressure that Jewish society was facing were the signs of the end times and that God's appearance was imminent to judge the nations, as he had promised to do in the canonical prophets. So this seems to be simply straightforward apocalyptic literature that expected the end to be any moment. The book of First Enoch, which is an enigma for most scholars in many ways, follows a similar line to the Testament of Moses. This book concerns itself with the origin of evil, which it traces to a mis misrepresentation, or misinterpretation rather, of Genesis 6, 1 through 4. Uh, so the author believed that angels first rebelled in heaven and then came down to earth and spread evil among uh, humanity. This book also viewed the wars between the Greek kingdoms as the signs of the end times, and, like the Testament of Moses, seems to expect God's judgment to arrive very soon. Now, closely connected with these themes, there are a few books that uh, Hellier, in his book, considered to be resistance literature that encouraged the inhabitants of Judah to fight against foreign influences through military means and drive them out of the country. This type of literature was at least in large part a response to the infamous incident when the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes set up an idol in God's temple and tried to force the Jews to worship it instead of God. This resistance literature includes the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which tell and glorify the story of the Maccabean revolt and the foundation of the Hasmonean dynasty of priest kings that we mentioned earlier. 1st Maccabees is a more sober historical work though it deals with some of the more difficult questions of waging war while living as an observant Jew. Notably, the, the book tells the story of how an early group of revolutionaries would return to the cave where they were hiding on the Sabbath day and rest. And at one point, they were found by their enemies and killed to the last man because they would not fight on the Sabbath day. Second Maccabees retells part of the same story as First Maccabees, but through a much more dramatized lens. This book is clearly designed to elicit sympathy and support for the Maccabees' cause and the Hasmonean dynasty. We have the book of Judith. Judith is a, a much harder book to date, but Hellier believes that the Hellenistic period is a good candidate. Judith tells the story of a young Jewish widow who thwarts an Assyrian invasion through a clever plot that allows her to deceive the Assyrian general without ever breaking the law of Moses. This could easily have been written to inspire young people to confidently and even creatively fight back against Greek domination. Hellier also included the letter of Baruch in this, uh, in this group of resistance literature, though his connection with the fighting in Judah is much more tenuous, since it's written from the perspective of a scribe who's been exiled to Babylon. In any case, this book seems to emphasize the principle that temple worship should never stop, never fail. It even suggests that worship on the altar in Jerusalem never stopped, even when the temple was destroyed and all of the priests were removed from Jerusalem. <laughs> now, the fighting in Judah led to the establishment of the Hasmonean dynasty, which introduced the idea of a priest king 
into Jewish history and offended the sensibilities of many, not only from mixing their religious office with a political one, but also because the Hasmoneans had no right to the high priestly office. The evidence suggests that Judaism fractured into several sects at this point. In fact, this event might be the origin of the, the various groups of the Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and others that we know from later literature. Some supported the Hasmoneans, some tolerated them because they controlled the temple, and some rejected them and the temple altogether. Much of the intertestamental literature seems to reflect the disputes that were going on at this time. Several books, including a couple that we have already mentioned, weigh in, in on a dispute about the proper calendar to use. It seems that some Jews, perhaps based on the, the, the books that take the opposite view, perhaps the priests in the temple used a lunar calendar that had a year of 360 days. Others contended passionately for a solar calendar with a 364-day year. This was an important issue because the two sides disagreed on which day the festivals, like the, the Day of Atonement, should be observed. Uh, both the Book of Jubilees and First Enoch that we've talked about already weigh in on this, this uh, question um, in favor of the longer solar calendar. And several books that were written among the Dead Sea Scrolls literature that we'll mention here uh, momentarily, uh, also made this point as a reason for rejecting the temple and the priesthood that served there. Now, the Qumran community, which is the, the community that preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls that are, uh, were famously found about 100 years ago now, uh, th this community was part of a sect that rejected the authority and legitimacy of the priesthood at the temple. They had left behind the wicked priest, according to their own terminology, who is probably one of the Hasmonean kings, to follow the teacher of righteousness into the wilderness. Their goal was to build a new nation that would become the true Israel in opposition to the Israel that worshipped at Jerusalem. They left behind several original writings, several songs, several rewritten re prophecies and portions of the Bible, and commentaries on the prophets that expressed their perspective. I will... I didn't make it quite as far as I'd hoped. I've got about two and a half minutes left, so I'll go ahead and uh, read my conclusion here. But there are several other books that we can look at in their context uh, during the Q&A if, if you have questions about them. But what all of this study should show uh, is, first off, that it would take much more time to explore any of these writings in detail. We've not even mentioned every writing that could be listed with the others. I don't even have slides for every writing that could be listed among the intertestamental period. But I hope that we've succeeded in placing these writings in their historical context so that we have a general framework that helps us reason through any questions and challenges that we hear related to them. These writings represent, by and large, the attempts of a religious society that had a rigid code of ethics who was trying to work their way through a, an ever-changing, an ever-challenging world that never made it easy for them to live out the ideal lives represented in the Law of Moses. We can find a lot of things to disagree with in this literature, and we can certainly disagree with the, the uh, device that so many authors used trying to place their books backwards into the Old Testament canon. But we can empathize with the, the difficulties they were facing during the intertestamental period, and we can appreciate the, the skill and success that Christ had and the, that the apostles had solving these same issues through 
the revelation of the New Testament. That brings my comments to a close. And